Hi, Tim Kask here. Faced with a TPK and have no idea what to do? Well, you might have had you listened to Save or Die. Welcome to Save or Die at 119. With you, as usual, is the guy who parties like it's 1989, DM Mike. And with him is the guy who parties like it's 1974, DM Jim. Hey, just remember, kids, if your magic missile doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. (laughs) And the woman that might argue with that, and who parties like it's 1899, DM Liz. Hello, everyone. And joining us this episode is the guy who parties like it's 1999 B.C., Steve Marsh. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show, Steve. My pleasure. We're going to be asking Steve some questions and talk about his latest old-school product, City of the Revenant. But first, do we have any announcements? Um... About the only thing I can think of is, and it's not really technically basic expert game related, but we did finally start up our local gaming group again just yesterday after taking a break ever since the holidays last year. So it was nice to get together again, although we did more talking than gaming, but hopefully we'll get back into the groove next week. <laughs> and I killed two PCs. Yay! Nice. Well done. <laughs> And neither one of them were mine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's you, Jim. Well, uh, as you guys probably know, uh, Ian World conducted a reader poll this past week uh, for the most anticipated RPGs of 2016. And uh, Newton Crawl Classics role-playing game came out as the number two most anticipated game of 2016. And I just want to thank everybody that voted for that, who are the real reason that it act, that actually happened. Um, the members of the group must have gotten on there and voted. And I especially want to thank everybody at my local friendly game store, Gateway Games and more, DM Todd and the Mutant Murder Hobos, my group. They helped me create that game. So it's very satisfying to see. No pressure, though. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's really cool. All right. Well, then unless there's anything else to cover, we'll cut to our usual incredibly important announcements and head right into our conversation with Steve. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, $1.50 a month goes a long way. Thank you. 
Thopus the Gnome here. The Save or Die podcast is brought to you in part by a more than generous grant from me. <clears throat> Don't you mean a generous grant by Lesser Gnome Games? Same thing. I pretty much run the joint. And this one too now, come to think of it. Here. Go finish the commercial for me, Nave. You got it. Lesser Gnome Games and Miniatures. Available at RPGnow.com, LesserGnome.com, or at a friendly local game store near you. And here we are, back with Steve Marsh, and talking questions. Things that people are really interested to know. Or these people are interested to know, anyway. <laughs> so, who wants to start? Well, I guess I will start. Um, I really enjoyed going over the notes for City of the Revenant and the Plain of Ice. Um, I think I found the city personally more interesting than the plane, although they were both really well done. I think you mentioned in the first page of your notes that um, this was something that you started up originally designed for the D&D brown box chainmail rules? Yes. It was before there were any other rules. So I didn't really think of them as, you know, a particular edition. It was just, that's what there is. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> and I was asked there was a convention going on. They asked me if I'd talk about how to run a lot of people and how to run them against each other. And so, kind of like a tournament? Yeah. Except where you've got teams playing against each other. So a bunch of PCs on both sides with stiffened up by NPCs. Hmm. And so I was on a panel, and first what we did is we talked about how to do it. And then we ran a scenario set in City of the Revenant where that's what they did. Okay, that's City of the Revenant. And so there were two sets of teams, and we had rules you won't see in the... We had extensive rules for surprise and for initiative because the the rules in the rule book don't go into enough depth when you've got player characters of all stripes involved. Mm-hmm. And then the parties... The, 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 the teams got up and they, I guess, fought with each other for the next four hours. And eventually, someone won, and everybody went home happy. And I just had a massive amount of backstory material for it. So this would be 1974-ish, five-ish. This would be 77-ish. Yeah, about 77, 76. Gotcha. Uh, I think it was at GlassCon. Where was that at? Southern California. Mm. Okay. So you're saying that, you know, adapted for two sides of teams, was everybody just at all at the same table, you know, both teams at the same time? There was a very large table. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I know in most of the tournaments I've been in, you know, usually if you've got multiple people doing, you know, you've got table A over here and then you've got table B over there, or, you know, the groups will go one after the other. You've seen that little map? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Each of the codes, like 1A, 1B, was its own map. Okay. And they were spread out over the table, and then the teams would move into where they were in close close contact, and then they would roll to determine who got surprise on who. And then they would engage in a melee. They had a... I let them use some more Dingle stuff. People playing, you know, all manner of home rules with the 
and homebrew stuff with each other. And so there was a lot of raising the dead. <laughs> <laughs> One side would run away and, and you know, run off with their bodies and, and make a fight in retreat. The other side would stay to consolidate. And, you know, the losers would try to raise the dead or whatever they could do. And occasionally the losers would have been eaten. And so people would be using more aggressive methods to get the bodies back. It was a lot of fun to watch them go at it. That sounds like Especially it. Especially since, you know, people were ninth to 12th level. So their clerics could raise the dead. They wouldn't have to go, quote-unquote, find a high-level cleric. If their clerics survived, they no. could do it. But you didn't. I don't think we had anybody over 12 or 12. Mm-hmm. And they all had hit points rolled up the old-fashioned way. Right, because back then, level 12 is when you started building your stronghold and working on retiring that guy. Yeah, and, you know, now you had two different, two different worlds in gaming. One, you had people like Gary, and Gary's running a game, what, twice a month? And then you had guys like the guys down in Chicago. I even had one of them for a roommate at one point when I was going to law school. He had to quit playing because they were playing seven days a week, every night. Wow. And they were, they were the guys that invented the stuff in Greyhawks that kill off player characters. That's why you had cursed stuff that was minus six. Did you wow. that was cursed when you're in melee? Even at my best times as a teenager, I don't think I could have done seven days a week. Well, he had to quit playing because he realized he was going to drop out of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ashamed of that. I flunked a semester of college over discovering D&D. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with that is when you've got a group playing like that, they just consume material. Whereas if you've got them playing more in the style like Gary was playing, when you've got a large dungeon and you can always flesh it out randomly if they go to the wrong place, uh, you know, they don't get ahead of your material at all. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they're, they're going down, let's say, six hours a day, seven days a week, sometimes more, they just tear through material like no one's business. Level up every week. Yeah, and quite frankly, I think Judges Guild uh, made a lot of growth possible in the hobby because otherwise those people would have just run out of material and they'd have gotten flatlined. And that well, makes any sense. It's interesting that you would bring that up because you took a summer break from college and worked for TSR and that was one of your jobs, right, was to approve the Judges Guild materials that came in. Yeah, and some of it I liked and some of it I was like, guys, come on. It's like if we had an interest company that wanted to send us women in armor, you could see their nipples through. And Warren Schick said, no. <laughs> no. And sent it all back and said, no, we're not licensing that. <laughs> you know, that's not what breastplate means. <laughs> well, to be fair, when Liz and I were in the SCA, there was a woman in Steora who had a breastplate with brass nipples on it. Just... Well, and some of the cool boy stuff was molded so you could see a guy's six-pack and he didn't have one. Mm-hmm. And you get in some of the Roman armor. It's molded and contoured. and That's the Joel, that's the Joel Schumacher Batman school of body armor. Yeah. And, you know, and most of that was parade armor. But I'm thinking of the Roman best place that had the moldings. Mm. Yeah, that, that's parade armor. 
guy's not out there fighting in it because it's going to catch a blow and focus it on a weak spot rather than shed it. And probably around your abdomen, where's the last place you want <laughs> for it to break through. Channel a blow through a weak point in your armor, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, he was just like, no. <laughs> I got a kick because he was, while I was in this meeting, he was like, just pulled him out. And he was like, ah, no. <laughs> it was like, and that was a big difference between TSR and then I read about Wizards of the Coast much later about their culture. And it was like, okay, that's, you know, TSR was a much more calmer, adult-like environment, if that makes any sense. You didn't have people running around, having affairs, getting drunk at work. And you can say a lot of things about the bones, and nobody ever accused them of being drunk at work <laughs> or sexually harassing employees. This was the mid-late 70s, so, you know, that wasn't unknown even back then. If you guys have gotten the martial aspects of this out of your system, I'm dying to ask about the magic system. May I? Sure. <laughs> um, Go for it. You, you know my preferences in a game system. Uh, <laughs> so you, you have a magic system that's based, if I've got this correct, on, of all things, the Golden Bow, one of the seminal books of comparative study of comparative religion. Oh, I found that was incredibly interesting. I in the 60s huh? when I was in high school. I'm trying to do my own role-playing game, and, and I never made it work well. I thought, gee, I could just work out the rules because there's a nice discussion of them midway through one of the books and lots of examples. And then from there, I could have an engineering approach to magic. And something that was just brilliant that, that Gary came up with was the underlying idea from Chainmail as magic as artillery. Mm -hmm. And the moment you make magic artillery and then special effects, suddenly you have a model and a way to, to calibrate the strength and to set things up that's easy to work with, easy for people to understand, and lends itself to play without driving distraction. I'd never seen miniatures either, so I was trying to do it using individual counters on a board game. Right. And that was, you know, I, it just wasn't working for me. So about 69, I'm trying to do this. It's not working for me. And then I went across uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and Sandy Peterson, of all things, had miniatures, which I didn't actually see until we had a, an actual battle. And he breaks out a box of miniatures, and it's like, oh, that's neat. <laughs> but the whole idea of just relatively free flow with hex paper, well, not hex paper, graph paper, that, that, was, that was neat. It was a lot easier to work with than trying to use hex paper and shits. And magic is artillery and special effects. That was these are trying to make magic a form of engineering. But I'm still, and I didn't, I'm still interested in how that connects to the Golden Bow. I I was an art history minor, so I I come to the Golden Bow with that background, where I I know how that book links to everything from Jungian psychology to ele, elemental symbology, artists and things like that. But how does that connect to the magic system you got going there? Yeah, I tried to get going and failed to do. Yeah. Um, have you ever read Bone What's Real Magic? I have not. Okay, he did a, a set of rules for Chaosium. 
And that's where it eventually leads if you try to do that. What you try to do is in, in Fraser's book, it's around page 60 or 70, starts going over rules. And every so often he goes over more rules with examples. And so what you do is you try to lay out these rules and you try to build an engineering platform from them. And what you get are non, you get role playing mechanics. Okay, I see. And it doesn't work well. That's why I say I tried to rather than I succeeded. And then when you see Bonewood's book, The Youth for Chaosium, you know, people are casting coffee spells. <laughs> so would you say that that's probably the closest to a Golden Bow if you were going to have one that's already extant? Yes, if you want to use the Golden Bow and try to use classic rules of magic, you get a copy of Bonewood's book, The One You for Chaosium. Okay. And he has a rule, he has his, and basically what you do is you kind of custom knock a ball spells, you have an incredibly huge number of spell points, and spells just consume spell points like they're going out of style. Think of it as, if, you know, uh, you, you measure all your spell points in milliamps, and spells take amps. It seems like I took us off on a tangent, but I saw a connection between the attempted magic system, even though you say you didn't succeed with it, and a lot of subsequent work that seemed to focus on uh, the elemental planes. Like, you created, uh, as a young man, a whole setting for the elemental plane of water. Um, it informs the work today. Yeah, I was, I was looking for identities. And there are, there are two ways to look at elements. One is platonic, where they're ideals, and then they, they inform everything. And the other is nominalistic, where they're nodes. Nodes are useful for all sorts of constructs, but gee... You can't have an element. You can't do anything made out of nodes, you know? Saying that they're elemental nodes is like saying that they're atoms. <laughs> You're not going to get much of a design from that. Whereas, if you have an ideal, then you can have it overlap and you can have it interweave and you can evoke it and you can have, a, you know, life forms living on the edges of it to fairly deep into it. You've got a frame of reference for... Yes, and so like you get you get you get water, you get to the ocean. Eventually, someplace in the ocean is going to overlap. You go deep into the earth, and at some point it will overlap. You go to the far north, where it's cold, and at some point it will overlap. You go to the south, assuming your world gets hot enough in the south. And of course, my world shattered norms does because it's not quite completed. Got disrupted before that happened. And you go to the plane of fire. You go into the mountain and go high enough and you overlap the plane of air. And then what you need to do is, is have stuff that's truly elemental. So your love of this stuff, it's, it's no accident that what you're describing for us sounds remarkably like the outlay of the uh, elemental planes in uh, AD&D. Sorry to get away from basic. You're, well, you're yeah. doing Gary corresponding and talking about things like this. Well, yeah, I can't remember the box idea. That's where you get the box. You have the box of, you know, your four elements. Or if you want to do five, five elements inside of a box. And then you stack your physical planes up inside of it. Yeah, I think, didn't that 
originally get published in Strategic Review before AD and D. So it was it was around then, yeah. Yeah, so there's a connection. And then you know, I, I thought you know we had good and evil, long chaos. You know, very especially like there's the Moorcock version. There's also Paul Anderson's version, mm-hmm. right? Where law is harmony and, and chaos is uh, what's feral, and so but neither of them. Are, you know. They're not really good stand. Chaos isn't a good stand-in for evil in either direction. Thank you. That makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we got an alignment systems and how many points they have. We pull this back into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like I like the idea of, of chaos as anarchy. Yeah, I mean, Hikeism. Mike and I. It's all philosophic school. Yeah, Mike and I always argue about this occasionally on the show, and you know. With the whole, you know, three hearts and three lions version of law and chaos, sure, I I can understand that. But the way it wound up playing out in the basic expert rules, chaos equated to evil, which I never, ever liked. So I I really do think that you need to add good and evil to the whole Uh, law chaos thing. Oh, yeah, I was was doing that. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny because it turns out Tim Cask wanted the same thing. And he'd always wondered who prevailed on Gary in the end. And we finally got to talking about it because he was like, we overlapped in a lot of areas, but we never actually talked. And Gary had this underlying assumption that everybody else was in contact. Interesting. And, and sometimes people were, but a lot of times they weren't. And that's you know, like the old joke where they used to blame, blame things on Tim. But you could only blame things on Tim if he wasn't there when it went wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, do so do you think... Because he didn't want to blame him on his fault. Hmm. It, had to be, it had to be obvious it couldn't be his fault before he could blame it on him. <laughs> so perhaps Basic would have been better off going with simply good, neutral, and evil than simply law, neutral, and chaos. Yeah, except you've got people who aren't comfortable doing that. But yeah, I think so. That's okay. another way to do it. The goal was with basic and expert was just to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. What they had done is AD&D had, you know, with spell components and all this other stuff, they realized they needed something for, like, tournaments. and The whole, the whole tournament thing turned out to be much bigger than they expected. And so they wanted really rigid rules that always played the same. I had 20 DMs playing it. You know, everybody could game master it. It'd all go the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that way you don't have to, you know, GM the tournament yourself every round. That's a legitimate concern because that's still going on today. Uh, Joseph Goodman stopped running tournaments uh, at Gen Con specifically because the Dungeon Crawl Classic system is so swingy, nobody could figure out how to regiment it in such a way that a tournament would be fair until Harley Stroke came up with the idea of a level zero character funnel where you, you rated your performance in tournaments just rated by how many encounters each level zero survives. And that worked, suddenly. Yeah. But, so what they had is, when they had those original rules, everybody expected you to make up your own rules. Mm-hmm. There's the framework. Pretty free form like D&D was in the day. Yeah, have you ever read any of Stephen Bruss' 
Vlad uh, Vlad the Assassin books, and Jared books. I've, I've read Rust, but not those particular ones. Okay, all of his fantasy stuff, that's their D&D campaign. Huh. So his Dragarian sorcerer lizards, those are his elves. Huh. Hmm. His, his native, earth-dwelling, soul-eating, mad-at-everybody-for-taking-over-the-world, those are his dwarves. <laughs> The reason he has that humans have sonics and elves don't is elves just don't care to. Too much concentration? No, it's like it's, it's primitive magic. Who would do that? Of course, one of, his, one of his elvish characters does, but for the most part, it's like, who would do that? But that's his D&D campaign he was playing in. No, I'll have to hunt those up. And, you know, if Russ doesn't tell you that, and you know, because he told me we had a discussion about it in some correspondence. Most people don't realize that that's his D and D campaign. And one other thing that's really entertaining is his books are not were not written in chronological order. But the sophistication of the world background progresses in chronological order, and that's really neat. That's a piece of writing work. Yeah, keeping that level of an in interior consistency. Yeah, so because it starts out simple and it gets more complex, and that happens chronologically through time. Mm -hmm. Much like a, a gaming campaign. Like the gaming campaign would. Yeah. But he's writing about it, and he's starting kind of in the middle and going back and forth. And so, while preserving his timeline, he also preserves the level of sophistication of the background. It's really slick. At least I thought so. All right. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, me too. So, next question. Over to you, Liz. Okay. Hmm. Well, we were talking about basic expert. Um, how much yes. of the expert set was your work, and what was your goal with the feel of an expert set as opposed to a basic or advanced it was to cover the next character levels <laughs> and leave some hooks for more on. Mm -hmm. So we had like sea serpents that could be up to, you know, give a level 20 character thing to think about. Um, there were a couple things I wanted to do that nobody else liked. I wanted to have the rhinoceroses being intelligent. I've so never heard that had. before. That's awesome. I wanted to be, yeah, really rhinoceros, I wanted to be intelligent. That way, if psionics came up, they could use those later. If not, they could still maneuver. You can have a random encounter with saying that it has intelligent uh, cavalry tactics. Well, it wasn't in the gray ooze that could potentially have psionics. If a gray ooze can have psionics, why can't rhinoceri? Well, yeah, I mean, and one of the guys at New Big Dragon actually worked out you know, restored intelligent rhinoceros. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they, they coordinate, they, they, act, they act as units. Like you would if you were an intelligent animal that had a charge and a large, you know, large horn. But I wanted to do that, and, you know, Errol Otis drew a rhinoceros sitting in a, a woolly rhinoceros sitting in a lounge chair with a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. You know, I want to move more primitive than that. Uh, another thing I wanted to do is I wanted to have 
vampires degrade in steps. Hmm. So like you in, stake, if you like stake a vampire, the revenant. yeah, you stake it, it knocks down eight hit dice, you know. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you just you know, if you read old literature, some some vampires are killed just by killing them in the daylight. Others you have to stake them. Some you have to cut their heads off and stuff them with stick garlic with down their throats. Some some you burn you burn the ashes and bury them in a crossroads. And obviously each of these things must have you know knocked down a few steps off the vampire. So the, the tougher the vampire, the harder it is to kill that way. And so that's a little too complicated. But what happened is I wrote it and then uh, Zeb Cook edited it. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, editing is about four times the work than writing it, especially with the tools we had back then. And you always, you know, edited that thing so you could interleave it with the basic set. Yeah. So how much did the two, yeah? How much did the two of you really talk? You know, say when he was editing, and you know, was it just I'm you? Back in, back in law school when he started editing. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk at all. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be, it, it's too bad you were in law school and you weren't in high school because that would be the all-time great what did I do this summer report. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote expert D&D, basic D&D. That's what I did this summer. I wrote for levels 4 yeah. to 14. What did you do? <laughs> yeah, I and mean, Tom had done the first and then, you know, they need someone to write the second everybody else was busy, so... I sat down and wrote it, and they wanted it to be consistent with, and not go too far, but, you know, consistent with the brown box stuff, and the idea was you'd have something you could play with, you know, a little more open, and, you know, and we got rid of a lot of the accretions that the first edition, the, you know, experts said had, the, the, you know, advanced, pardon me, not experts, advanced, hmm. you know, AD&D stuff, we stripped out a lot of that. And we came up with a way to handle elves. I mean, elves originally what happened is you had the same character and you could be a fighter or a magic user from week to week depending on what you wanted to do. Because it was some miniatures gaming and this week could be a magic user, this week it could be, you know, a fighter. Here's your magic user mini and here's your fighter mini. Yeah, and you know what you were doing was you had a, a, a unit for your, your military that you could switch off. You can switch between. Mm. And, and that just, you know, and then people wanted some sort of combination of them all, you know, at the same time. Mm. I love that so this was an intermediary step, that Holmes Basic was written just to introduce people to the game in some way other than trying to be taught to play, which you would have to with the brown books, and then go to AD&D. That's Holmes. Then your set is still uh, there to reconcile with and not uh, contradict the, the Brown books. And then by the time you get to the next version, Frank's version, okay, no, this is its own game. Yeah, because we were trying not to make changes, if that makes any sense. Or, or, yeah. We are trying to express it with a little bit more text, a little bit more writing, a clean up some inconsistencies. Compatibility, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the basic set that, that, that Holmes did was just, okay, I'm going to do this better without any real 
other integration. It was just, we're going to do the bound box stuff better. And then AD&D was, okay, here we have nice, clean rules to cover everything. Mm. And, you know, this is the next step. And then the basic expert was, well, here's the same stuff, but it's more consistent with the brown, you know, and more adaptable. You can take this and do what you want with it. I love my brown books and homes, but if there's any type of quote-unquote D&D that I'd want to give to a totally new person, it would be the Molde uh, Basic and the Marsh Cook Expert. Well, you know, and Tom and Zeb had both taught college. And so they, they taught people. Well, that makes sense. I mean, now, Holmes did an improvement, don't get me wrong, but I think Mulvey was even clearer in a lot of ways. Well, I think even Lewis would agree. It's hard to break out of the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia when it's the system you started with because there was a point, I mean, not that many years ago when I would have said I loved first edition AD&D because it was rules light. Well, it was rules light because we didn't use 90% of what was actually in that book, <laughs> right? Well, I yeah. was taught to play, but my perception is completely different than the reality. Yeah, and I still love my home's basic, but I will be the first to admit, it can be hard to find what you're looking for in that rule book. And well, see, when I, you know, well, when I was playing, it were just rules. Yeah. They were all the same. People didn't really distinguish a lot. Yeah, I, I've mentioned that on the show before. It's like back then, it was D&D. &D. Something came out, you used it or you didn't. It doesn't matter what the label said on it. And there was just a really heavy, at some levels, attitude that every campaign was was a homebrew campaign. And the books were just some, something to launch it from. We struggle with that sometimes on the show, Steve, because uh, I, coming up in that era, we're all do-it-yourself guys, right? And that was the mindset yeah. that Gary wrote for at that time. But then there was a shift where, okay, here's gazetteers, here's campaign settings, and things got more and more complex. And an entire generation of gamers came to it from that time period. And a canonical base? Yeah. Yeah. Well, people wanted it. Yeah? You know, it's kind of like Gary wrote that article about dwarf women with beards. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought, surely that would cause people to realize that he was just another guy. Yeah. And that this was not <laughs> ex-cathedral. <laughs> and instead, it was like, this the is debate ex-cathedral. This, this is the voice of God speaking out of the ether. And it's like, and we're like, you know, okay, guys, but... And, you know, when Gary realized that that's how people were taking like, okay, that's the way they're going to be. <laughs> I hate to say it, but in the 80s when I was a teenager, if I had heard that Gary Gygax, you know, said that this is the way it's done, I would have taken it as holy red. Well, he was trying to get people not to, and he realized it was impossible. Mm, yeah. But he was surrounded by people who were adults and who had their own ideas. And so often he'd encounter people that were like, well, 
I'm better. <laughs> um, and, or, and people had ideas of what was simple. There's just, let's talk about Arduin. You know where Arduin came from? Oh, please, let's talk about Arduin. <laughs> they wanted someone to do, a, it was the first try at basic introductory role-playing. Think of Arduin as Chaosium's effort to get someone to write the Holmes basic set. Hmm. I didn't think about it that yeah. way, but yeah. It's a lot of things, that but they, that's, that's not what it is. That's not how it turned out. That's not what they got, but it's what they tried to do. Yeah. Huh. But, you know, and, and you know, and, and Dave Hargrave, about to lapse into a Texan, which is bless his heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> You know, which can mean anything from I wish him the best, I'm completely puzzled, to all sorts of other things. In this case, it's like, I'm not sure what possessed him, but he wrote Arduin. In response to requests, it's kind of like, have you read any early Eric and Melnabone stories? Um, Don't think Elric? so. Yeah, I've read a few. Of he's yeah, a, yeah he's, a, he's an inhuman sorcerer with a soul-draining sword. Yeah, I, I could never He's get now it now. <laughs> He's got all sorts of problems. Very emo. Did you know that Michael Moorcock wrote Elric as a Conan clone? The anti-Conan? Yeah. But it was intended to be like Conan. That's as close to Conan the Barbarian as Michael Moorcock could get. Really? I thought he was trying for, like, the anti-Conan. No, his editor had asked him to do the anti-Conan. Oh, okay. He misunderstood the editor, and he tried to do a Conan-like character. But you know, Michael Moorcock, a Conan-like character means he's got a sword. Conan's human. This guy's not. Conan hates sorcery. This guy... <laughs> Depends on it for his life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Conan is doesn't like evil Eldritch things. This guy is evil and Eldritch. Conan worships a distant god. This guy summons his god to have snacks. <laughs> Conan and, started and, as a nobody and ended up becoming a king. Elric starts as an emperor. <laughs> and ends up a war. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and Wilcock, I was reading an interview he gave on it. He's like, well, the guy, you know, the editor was pleased with it. He said, you really hit, you really hit what I wanted. And, you know, I'm saying, yeah, you know, do my best to write some like Conan. So, you know, obviously it wasn't, but you know, he, he that's what he could, that's what he did. I love this whole and, discussion because this this happens all the time with any art. The artist brings to it what their intentions are, but then the viewer or the in this case the gamers bring, come with their own set of expectations and their own history and baggage to it, and well, and, and uh, can walk away with something completely different. Well, and Dave Hargrave did not produce a basic, simple, low-powered introduction to role-playing. Even though that was the goal. And so he went on and published his product, uh, and Chaosium eventually got the little, little basic role-playing stuff they had, which is a real simple introduction to the D100 system. Steve Pearn obviously did a much better job than Dave Hargrave did at basic introductory low-powered stuff. But it's just funny to think that's what Dave was trying for. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, here we have a monster with 400 hit points. Or 400 hit dice. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and there's so much stuff in the Hobbit that has a genesis like that. It's like, you know, Arneson's idea with, magic, with mages is they'd go up levels by learning all the spells at one level. You literally had to get all the merit badges to go up and rank. And everybody would have six hit points. Ouch. Yeah. That's I remember illegal. You know, Arneson actually published his rules. Is that Adventures in Fantasy? Oh, somewhere. I remember seeing them. Mm-hmm. There was a TSR had a library back in the main building that nobody ever looked at, and we had a copy of it back there. Mm-hmm. It was memo, but that's back in the day when there was really high quality memos available. Kazan did some incredible stuff with high quality memo. And he had a multicolored memo set. And, you know, this is what he intended. And it is just so dramatically different from D&D. It has fixed hit points. He wouldn't believe a human could ever take on a dragon. I mean, it's just a system he never could. Mm-hmm. He got six hit points. He can breathe once. <laughs> uh, It'd make everybody be a lot more cautious, I'd think. Well, yeah. And the, in Blackmore, there's some, you know, systems for rolling and hitting great spikes to the body and stuff. And that was, that was uh, Arneson's system. Mm-hmm. And... You know, he was kind of, he even gave him some interviews, like one that was published in the uh, Cousins magazine about how D&D was nothing like what he had envisioned. Yeah, I think I read that. And then, you know, later he realized that, that was probably not the best thing to say if he wanted to get royalties from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, I have a story to share with you that, that, that touches right on this, this thing. Um, I, I, I was doing research for this, and I thought to call uh, Tim up and just, check what I thought I was learning online because, you know, you can't really trust Wikipedia and things like that. And Tim was there. So I'm running what I think is my little research list down, and I had come up with that uh, you had created an elemental plane of water setting, sent it into Gary, and a lot of that uh, was the basis of the underwater adventure section in uh, the Blackmore supplement. And Tim's version of this was, uh, well, no, not really – you know, there were a lot of notes that we compiled. Steve's could have been part of that. But mainly it was just, you know, some monsters like the Zawagan. And then as an aside, he goes, and Dave had a conniption when he saw that included because he thought Blackmore was going to be all him. Yeah. yeah Dave flipped out over, over your creatures being included. But there wasn't enough page count. And Gary was trying to get a complete page count product. Um, now, something you'll find out talking to Tim is that what Gary did is stuff would come in, and Gary would stick it in the big basket of stuff. And when I mentioned he often, often assumed people were talking to each other, even when they had no contact at all. Mm-hmm. And so stuff would go in the big basket of stuff, and then Tim would find out where it came from when it came time to put the credits on, on, the, uh, on the supplements. And he wouldn't actually be told where which particular piece came from. <laughs> so there'd be a big pile of stuff. And then he and Gary would talk about it, and Tim would try to edit it together. And then Gary would say, oh, by the way, these people need to be in the credits. 
Which you are, is one of the thank yous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, once I found out about the elemental plane of water, I had always wondered, it's like, you know, there was the aquatic ghouls, aquatic ogres, that sort of stuff, and I'm like, why, why go to all that extra effort for what's basically just a part of the world? But it wasn't originally designed as part of the world. It was designed as its own elemental plane, so that makes a lot more sense to me. A lot of detail got lost um, because um, I'm going to be polite about talking about this guy, Steve Marsh, who has a terribly terse style. Sometimes I get very verbose, but often I'm terribly terse. And the result is, for example, nobody thinks, when you think of the, the seagulls, you don't think of them as, you know, having long fins running along the sides of their bodies, pale green in color. Uh, gaping jaws, uh, and sometimes running with heels. And, and there's a lot of stuff like that. <laughs> it's all my fault. Uh, I had someone who said, you realize selling the terseness was part of my style. There's you know, there's a, maybe the, a collection of monsters that includes some of the stuff from my dream room <laughs> materials. I said, gee, that's part of your style, it's <laughs> uh, Speaking of your creations, um, yeah. there was some discussion of the idea of a mystic character class. And yes. I was curious, did that, uh, was that uh, similar to the mystic class that Mincer eventually introduced in his uh, basic okay. expert series, or was that totally My mistakes, what I did is I looked at traditional Indian mysticism. And you have the chakras, and, the, and those each line up with the major powers. Mm-hmm. And you have all these minor psychic powers. And so what I did is, I said, you know, you don't have a psychic character class. I'll call them the mystic. And they'll have level names like guru and sat guru and saint. And, you know, I'll give them body hardening so they have some sort of offense, you know, so they can melee like everybody else does. Then they'll get these powers, and they'll get more every level, and, you know, it'll work this way. Mm-hmm. And so I submitted a character class. I actually typed it up. And that went in the basket of stuff, and the next <laughs> thing you know, it ends up being the psychic powers. The other character class they were working with was called the Vines. And I'm not sure who did it, but they won mental attack and defense systems. And it did not make a character class by itself. It worked. So I was talking, the new big dragon was working on their, their psychic uh, supplement. Um, I thought, you know what you could have done with divines, which they didn't because obviously they wanted to do something that was consistent with the original rules. You could have given them four types of attacks. A range area of effect, a range single target, a non-range area of effect, and a non-range single target attack. And we give them four attack, the four defenses that work better, you know, I built out a matrix, and I you know, thought, you know, you could do that. And then, you know, one that defends you and your buddies, one that defends just you. Four different defenses, you have a rock, paper, scissors sort of thing going on with some overlays. Okay. And so you've got a ranged attack much like an archer can shoot an arrow. And that's thing, by the way, 5th edition's done is it's given everybody ranged weapons. 
everybody has them, but fifth edition play, everybody's carrying ranged weapons out. So, you know, the goblins come at you and everybody that swoops with their bows or arrows or swinging their thumb dagger or whatever. Mm. Darts, whatnot. Yeah. Fifth, fifth edition is extremely balanced. You cannot be a wizard in fifth edition and upset the apple cart like you can back in old school D&D. Yeah, but also, everybody does a sensible thing and carries ranged weapons. Uh, and when I was asked, when I was working a little bit on a, a fifth edition on, you know, some glosses on it, I just gave everybody cantrips. So you don't have to carry all the ranged weapons around. <laughs> <laughs> And get the same effect. Yeah. Uh, and in some of the versions of Greyhawk, when you look at, you know, this, this fighter fights like four men. He's got four hit dice, he fights like four men. Okay. That means, you know, he rolls four times. And, and that, that soon went out of, out of style. And there, there are good reasons for that. Mm. Yeah. Chainmail. He's a superhero. Yeah. He gets this many yeah. dice of attacks. Yeah, and when you do that, a magic user merely is getting range on it. So a magic user is firing at fireball out of the distance, whereas a superhero is doing that kind of damage up close. And what you're getting are ranged damage characters and melee damage characters. Yeah, when I was looking at City of the Revenant, is it Revenant or... How do you pronounce it? You pronounce it either way. Revenant or Revenant. Revenant. Um, I noticed a lot of the stats and such in there was uh, you intentionally wrote that for the old style original D&D of hit dice, etc. That was the impression I got from the various monsters and such. Yeah, though I I did did tone down the actual damage they were doing somewhat uh, so that people could play it with the way people tended to tend to play OSR. And one thing, I, I'll, another thing I'll say about it is that it, just looking through it, I get the impression of this really, if I were run, playing through this, I would feel like I did at the, when I first started playing D&D because you have so many custom monsters that you just can't go, oh, look, it's, um, you know, a, a, a normal dragon, okay, he can only do this, this, and this. Surprise, it's a special dragon, or a special troll, or, you know, fill in the blank. You can't Wait. go in with any assumptions. One of the list has a brass Suahagen on it. I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> a brass Suahagen. Okay. Oh, look out, he's brass. Oh, no. <laughs> no, those are all guardian monsters. They're like yeah. brass golems trapped in doors, and they come out and... And the, the imagine side were made out of brass. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I made that 1999 PC comment because of the whole module had that old Minoan feel to it all. And when when you mention all the guardians, my first thought was it was kind of almost like household gods. Those aren't those aren't made out of brass though. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and there there are rules for all the shrines that all the large buildings have inside of them. Yeah, when I got to that part, I told Liz, okay, rule one, do not go into the shrine. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't. Well, yeah, and everything that's in that book is the sort of thing an adventure would learn hanging out at the fortress, talking to people that have been in. If they actually listen to rumors, right, Liz? 
always yeah, listen to rumors. <laughs> if you actually sat down at a bar with some guys and listened to them talk, and actually prepared properly. I gotta ask how you ever ended up being a lawyer because your background in literature and mythology, you sound like every art major I went to school with. Okay, couple things. You wanted to eat? Well, that's, that's <laughs> fair point. That's a fair cut. <laughs> okay, first off, I enjoy practicing law. And I can see where that, 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 that sort of empirical and logic-gritting mindset would be perfect for game design. That part I get. And then my wife got me involved in the study of people who don't have visual memories. Uh, if I have a visual memory of something, I very few, and I've actually looked at pictures and compared my memories, and my memory is less than 1% of what's showing up on the picture. Uh, and so I, I envision all this stuff and I don't have, like, I don't have a really good memory for flavors. Even though I do, I've done a lot of, you know, on flavor matching. And I have to, when I do that, I'm doing it from the evocative feeling I get from the flavors rather than the flavors themselves. My wife's very, my, my daughter, I was walking by her, said, you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife's very concrete. The whole family's engineers. I'm very abstract. All right. Well, is there any other projects you've been working on recently other than City of the Revenant? Well, I've got, that's one of the things I'm going to do for um, NTRPG Con. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on the, uh, the second part of it. And then I'm also going to do Across the Sea of Stars, which will take people from the, the big city on the mainland to the port city where most things start over to uh, Star Strands and then to the Plane of Fire. One extreme to the other. Well, yeah, I mean, and uh, see, the Revenant really doesn't need Plane of Ice, but it's kind of like what I did last year, really did need the Plane of Shadow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'd like to get, I figure I'm going to get the planes out there. What the heck? Yeah. Well, I think the, the various elemental planes haven't been used as much as they really could be for adventure locales and situations. I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because there's a question I'm dying to ask. Yeah. Uh, I read, Steve, that uh, in the early 80s, you and Gary were collaborating on what was planned to be a hardback AD&D book called The Planes of Existence but it happened to be right at the time that Gary was ousted from the company, and so the book was never published. Uh, what can you tell us about that, and, and did any of that end up being in what they did finally publish, which uh, Manual, of the Planes. Manual of the Planes, which when that book came out, I'm like, this is exactly what we've been wanting this whole time. <laughs> as far as I can tell, less than 1% of it ended up in Manual of the Planes. Hmm. Uh, That's good, then. Star Strands was completely finished, and it was in Gary's office when he got locked out of his office by the rain, and she burned everything. Uh, and in fact, when I was told that she burned everything, I thought there were people being figurative. <laughs> I later found out that she had actually burned artwork and had emptied all Gary's stuff out of his office, saying it was useless, and burned it all. Wow. Did her money. Including. What's that? Did her much, was she? <laughs> 
you know, I mean, but, you know, I had completed Star Strands, which had originally called Dreamweb, and they said, well, you know, we have this law thing. You know, we don't want to use the word web too much. I was like, okay. Uh, you know, I had encountered charts and the monsters and a couple mini dungeons and so yeah, I've got the title wrong. Godlings. I've gotten the title wrong, then. It wasn't called The Planes of Existence. Uh, we just had working titles. Okay. And then I had a bunch of stuff, and Judges Guild was interested in it, and they kind of it didn't quite connect. Uh, and Mike Gunderoy was going to uh, edit and rewrite a big chunk of it for me. And uh, that's when he had his fire, and everything went up. And I had my copy. He had the original, so I had a copy. And the copies went out, my working copies that uh, Paul Stoneberg sold. One of the and what happened was, Yeah. Huh. And what happened was, I was getting ready to just throw everything out. And about the week that I was going to do that, I got contacted by the guys at Dragon's Foot. I said, oh, I'll ship it to you. And the guy said, I'd love that, but you know, it's probably valuable. And put me in touch with Paul, and so I shipped it off to Paul, and he went through it and made as much sense of it as he could. And having looked at the City of the Revenant material, I'm like, like, gosh, you know, it's not as. When it's my notes that I'm working, I'm using it as just notes to work from, and it's fresh in my mind, sure. It's rather usable, but if. But just straight out, if someone else is picking it up, like I realized my, the maps didn't fit together as easily as I thought they did. Mm-hmm. Because it's not as obvious. And when I remembered it, somebody, oh, yeah, it's as obvious, but I'm looking at it, how the heck did that work? <laughs> <laughs> what well, was I thinking? I know it works. I just learned this lesson recently where I've learned not to say I have something written just because it's in a state that I can run at a game. That's, that's yeah. not written. <laughs> Ditto. Ditto. Well, you know, I, thought, I, I got like, you know, 18 maps and they all fit together perfectly. <laughs> so and I'm looking at them and suddenly it all it, it clicked for me. I remembered how they fit together. And I said, you know, I'm not going to use the old maps. I'm going to redo the map as one map and, and key it instead. <laughs> well, so this is a better answer than I was hoping for because the thing you worked on with Gary in the 80s, in a sense, is now being rolled out a section at a time in what you're doing today. A better, yes. modern version of it. Yeah, I just decided, you know, it never ended up getting published. The deal was TSR could use all my stuff and return to publish my book. You know, Jesus uh, and Demi Gods, you know, Jim Ward was making 50 grand a month off that for a while. Well, one of the scenarios okay. in City of the Revenant, um, the mm-hmm. year quest, the shaman story, you talk about yeah. the dream realms in that one. Is that going to be something yeah. that comes out and has its own supplement? Because it sounded really fascinating. Yes, and pieces of that have been used uh, in what I did the last two years at NTRPGCon. Mm-hmm. I've had people go through Dream. And I will eventually, and I fleshed out pieces of it, and I'll flesh out some more. The, the basic idea is what you've got you've got positive energy and negative energy. All right? Mm-hmm. Negative energy takes you down 
if you want to go down like down toward neutral evil takes you down, positive energy takes you up. As you go down levels you get decays. As you go up levels you get ideals. Like the ideal cat. <laughs> you know. Um, and at some level ideals are gods. And the dream realms are the entryway to that. You can almost think of the dream realm as the entryway, you know, like the astral realm. Mm-hmm. But it's... Uh, this is sounding very Neil Gaiman, Alan Morris. Yeah, except I was doing it before they started writing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and no offense to Alan Moore, but almost everything he does eventually turns out being really depressing at the end. I mean, he's an awesome writer, but... <laughs> well, yeah, but when, when your starting point is comparative religion, everybody ends up in the same general area. <laughs> yeah, well, see, what I wanted to do in, like, 69, when I was thinking, I thought, you know what you're going to have is two worlds. Both of them want more magic, and they're both seeking... You know, another level of existence has got more magic in it. And they both manage to suck themselves together so you get them merged to each other. And that gives you multiple levels of reality messed up in the same place. I thought this would be just a great setting. And so way back then, I was like, yeah, do you think I want to do something with the point of reality? I want to do something with what people now call archetypes. And I want to have underlying engineering for it. And then I started taking some philosophy classes. I thought, gee, I can integrate both idealism and nominalism into this, as well as classical physics. Classical physics being, you know, Anaximander and the rest of the Greeks, <laughs> which isn't physics as people understand them today. But it's like, well, you know, if you had magical uh, identities to things, you could have a whole level of of reality of, of, of um, physics that deal with magical identities rather than uh, atoms mm-hmm. and such. There is no part of what you're talking about I don't love. <laughs> and, you know, and so when I started to do stuff, I thought, you know, sure, I could just do a scenario. You know, if I'm going to run some people and they're going to go experience a tower, explore that, and then, you know, it, it branches off into going up to a city full of undead, okay. But you know, it's like, gee, I might as well wrap them into shadow, which is the whole, you know, the whole fifth edition thing I did. And I thought, you know, fifth edition was kind of fun because it runs like someone's house rules. If that makes any sense. It's certainly flexible enough to run that way. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I'll just treat them like some house fools. <laughs> well, uh, well, does anyone else have any other questions, then? Um, no? <laughs> I'm, I'm all done getting us off on spiritual tangents and elemental <laughs> symbology, sorry. Well, I've got to ask, unless you want to ask, Mike, mm. about mm. RuneQuest. Ah, uh, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do the duck race for RuneQuest? Was that yeah, you? what? The the duck the... race for Duck Tower and no oh no, man I was so hoping you were behind the ducks <laughs> <laughs> no you know, the old joke is that uh, there are no ducks left they've all become player characters 
Well, I mean, who wouldn't now, want to play an anthropomorphic duck? I mean, come on. No, I, I did come with homeopathic hit points, <laughs> which, which is basically you have a hit point pool rather than hit locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And you say, well, that's just a result of people being tied to the man room. It, it speeds stuff up, and there's a whole bunch of stuff done that way. And it is, if you notice, the model from the, the second set of rules they came out with when they finally did a different kind of hero quest rules. You used to have a pool of hit points. You don't have hit locations and everything else. Okay. The room quest is a lot of fun. And it's easy to design for. I played Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. yeah. But I've never actually played more than one game of RuneQuest, I fear. Yeah, gee, I mean, and they had a a border a campaign set they had in Borderlands or something. They did it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. People reading through it, uh, and I did something up. It's on my website called Regular Folks, which is you take people from starting characters to the first year or so, and all the things people would do. And okay, we can put a link up that in our show notes then, if it's available for people to read. Yeah, it's somewhere on ADR.com. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I guess my last question will be, um, if we're able to sign up for it, even though we've read it, can Liz and I still play in the game at North Texas? Oh, sure. (laughs) Because you won't, I mean, the actual scenario is not any of the stuff you've seen. True. All you is what people, what you get from reading that is the kind of background knowledge anybody who did their research would get. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And that's why the other stuff, like the breakdowns of, you know, some of the random encounters, none of it's in there. Okay. Nice and, Mike. You tried to get an advantage, didn't you? <laughs> and surprisingly enough, of course... Uh, there's a set of Plane of Ice monsters whose descriptions aren't really included. They're just names. Okay. What was that, Jim? I just said, nice try. You're trying to get an advantage. I saw what you're doing there. Actually, I was thinking we wouldn't be allowed to play. That's <laughs> what I was afraid of. It's like but you, everything you, you know the rant. secrets. You can't sign up. <laughs> hey, all's fair in love and player characters. <laughs> well, except you don't have the secrets. I don't know if you've ever seen... If you've seen the material I've sent out before for other... In other years. Mm-hmm. You know, generally if people are playing in my stuff, they get a pile of stuff in advance. And, you know, last year I gave people almost probably three, four hundred pages in the bound volume. <laughs> playing the Shadow, all the monsters. Wow. Two collections of monsters, a bunch of artwork and everything else. Limited edition. Because uh, yeah, it's like, okay, let's have some fun. And let's, you know, let's give people something to remember. What was really interesting is I had, paint, I had painted minis as well that people could take. And when I found out my daughter was going to get whatever was left over, they, all the players in both, both times gave them all back. And they <laughs> ended up with all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's kind of a hard thing to do. It's like, I can't take a look. <laughs> take minis. Well, no, I mean, 
Well, they weren't taking them. They were just, they found they were the, you know, whatever was left over, they didn't take. It's like, I was really quite surprised. I expect them to keep the minis, but, you know, I had the, the, uh, both years I've had, um, everything on CD, on, uh, on flash drives as well. Last year I had knives and bottles. The year before I had, uh, these little ninja figures. Mm-hmm. And the ninja figures, I got them for a great deal. They were selling at the time for 60 bucks each oh. um, on, on Amazon. So everybody got one of those. Wow. So, you know, people generally get back, we're getting back to cost of admission by playing in my game. At least. If you're open to suggestions, I, I give out custom D6, and I never got one of those back. <laughs> they feel like pancakes. Yeah, but you irradiate them. That's true. <laughs> so you don't want them back. <laughs> Amass but, enough yeah, of them, sure. you might get a mutation. I probably have a bound volume. I was hoping to make dragons and imprint uh, flash drives in those, but that's been proven to be more work than I really want to get done. Oh, well. Well, uh, thanks for coming on to the show. We appreciate all the information you've given us, both about your stuff at North Texas and in the past. Go on, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I love the idea that you can use the city as a bridge to other planes because it is so amorphous and constantly changing and just the idea of walking into the city doing something and then when you walk out you suddenly realize this is not where i entered it's like <laughs> where am i it's like it's like that you is cool it's not where you entered <laughs> yeah it's like you know <laughs> When I, came that, up to the, yeah, when I came up to the city gates, this was a barren plain, and now I've left, and I'm on a seashore, and what the it's heck is behind jungle. that? What? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's just a really neat idea. And you could even go to, to like different <laughs> genres. I mean, now suddenly you're in Gamma World, or <laughs> Mean Paul Classic. Well, now that's what Gary wanted to use Starstrands for. Mm-hmm. You want each of the ends to connect to a different setting. Parallel so prime material. This would be material world. This would be Boot Hill. This would. He wanted to use star strands as a mod, as a locus, so that you could have a D and D campaign. The characters could stumble on uh, an entrance to it, and they could cross over it and go to other other types of games and other campaigns. Which is an excellent way of doing it. Yeah, you know. I'm... Okay, well, I guess then we'll do our tradition on the show and start heading down the dusty Bill Bixby dusty road to the future. If you've listened to the show, you know we tend to come up with ideas on how we're all heading down the road. But I'm going to start this time with Jim. I knew you were starting with me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm heading down a dusty road with my pointy wizard cap and a Hawaiian shirt, cargo shorts, and sandals because I'm about to cast planar step because I want to go check some of this out and see if I can't run into some side reel priest of flame or the uh, priest of the blinded god. All right. And how about you, Liz? Well, I'm running down the dusty road because I'm being chased by an animated cloak prong that is trying to spear me in my cloak. <laughs> Ow! 
just give up the cloak and you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's mine! <laughs> How about you, Steve? I'm about to apparate to where my dinner is. <laughs> ah, best reason of all. And That's the I'm best use of point shifting. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm going to walk down the dusty road, but first I'm going to wash my feet in this convenient foot washer with just a little odd green color on the side, but I'm sure it'll be fine once I wash my feet in it. <laughs> you were warned. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Steve, and we look forward to having you back on the show sometime in the future and certainly seeing it in North Texas, if nothing else. My pleasure. You have a great evening. Thanks. You too. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you in 120. Goodbye. All right. Bye. See you, York. This is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saber Night theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.BandCamp.com. Free our copyright Mike Stewart and Caves of Chaos Tourism Board. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Time, my friend, the outcome's all the same.